Welcome back to another edition of the Ways of Working podcast. I am your host, Adam Thackeray, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Terry Geddes. Uh, Terry is the former mayor, acclaimed mayor, actually, of Collingwood, and as well as the former warden of Simcoe County. Uh, this is here in Ontario, Canada, for those listening internationally. Uh, currently, ter- Terry serves as the president of SIMTM Consulting, Inc., and is also chair of the Collingwood Junior A Blues Board of Directors. So that's the hockey organization here in Collingwood, Ontario. Uh, we get into discussions around some pretty key items happening uh, right now uh, around attainable housing community, uh, the roots of Collingwood, how it's adapting, how it's evolving, and just so much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. I'd like to welcome Terry Gaze. So, uh, so, so thank you very much for joining today. Welcome to the Ways of Working podcast. Obviously, very excited to have you on today. And, you know, we had a, a great preliminary discussion, you know, the other week and was very grateful for, for Mark, Palmer, uh, Mark Palmer introducing us and, uh, you know, was looking forward to it. Um, you served as mayor for, you know, over nine years. And, and during that tenure, you seemed to really support failing fast, learning uh, as a former, you know, vice principal and principal. Um, that whole notion of learning and failing fast and growing and progressing. Um, why was that so important to you? And why do you think that's even more important now as the, you know, community is starting to evolve and as well as just, you know, when you were serving as mayor? Uh, the, the whole component of education, one of the real advantages of being a mayor and a principal is, is that people would say to me, how can you do both? And I would say to them, well, the real world's only an extension of the schoolyard. And to be quite honest with you, in most cases, kids have their own agenda and they're more, they're more honest in terms of what they're trying to achieve compared, <laughs> so true. compared to the political field of it at times. So to me, uh, it, it's, it's incredibly important that when you look at, you're basically asking me the combination of education and, and uh, politics. Yeah. Well, the, the, the secret there in terms of being a mayor and a principal is that the one training ground that you have as a principal is you become very strong in your interpersonal skills. You understand very quickly that the buck stops with you and that you have to make the final decisions that you also understand is something I was very, very big on, Adam, was emergency measures. It's imperative that municipalities have an emergency measures program in place. All of the, all of the uh, uh, process and policies that go into being a good school administrator also apply in many, many ways in terms of being a good municipal administrator. The one thing that I learned as a principal and the thing that I always prided myself on as a mayor, I believe very firmly that successful people surround themselves with people smarter than themselves Mm -hmm. and they work with those people and they respect them and allow them to have the autonomy to go out and do what they believe they're capable of doing and a good leader empowers those individuals to do that 100 percent and and so with that like the and leadership and you know this is becoming very much an entrepreneurial community and you know it's in a significant growth phase how do you think this evolution has differed and where do you think leadership you know really needs to be focused as 
you know, it, it's supposed to grow by 50% by 2030. And obviously there's a lot of people, myself being one of them that have migrated from the city. You know, I'm from a small town originally, but migrated up from a city having lived there for quite some time. Um, what do you think is important from a leadership perspective as we move forward now as well? Well, I think first and foremost, let's do a little quick history lesson. All right. For those mm -hmm. who aren't aware of Collingwood, the shipyard shut down in 1986. And for about 10 years after that, there were still many citizens who thought it was coming back. I, came, I ran for council as a councillor in 1994. And during that three year period, I saw opportunities in terms of what the future of Collingwood could be. Mm -hmm. We had the shipyard, as you know, Adam, living here was at the base of the harbor. Yep. And it was a thriving industry at times employing, um, employing over a thousand people. It was an industry, however, that um, was not as strong as what people believed because you were as only as good as your last ship. Right. And, and we were very much an industrial town with Blue Mountain on our edge. My goal when I was elected, and I was very happy to say I had strong staff and strong support counselors, was to convert that opportunity that we saw with, with the going down of the shipyard. So two things that we focused on. The first thing was the shipyard property itself. Yep. What, were we going, what were we going to do with it? Second thing we focused on was the shipyard workers. And why I'm giving you both of those as, as a bit of a history lesson is because out of those shipyard workers came the evolution of small business into Collingwood. Mm -hmm. And our focus went from trying to live on major industries, yep. which we had, but those were also based on a world market and proximity to the Highway 400 and the speed of getting things there. The other thing that you got to take into account when you run larger industries, which equates to small business is skilled labor. Right. You know, it's really easy to start a business, but if you don't have the skilled labor to work within that business, it's not going to be successful. No. So we know, so we as a, a council and as a community, because I was a firm believer in involving community mm -hmm. through the charrette process, and the, the, what you have down there at the shipyard, uh, the great majority of it was envisioned by the people of Collingwood during our charrette process. And we went uh, full tilt in terms of putting in place what the people of Collingwood saw and would like to have down there. Small business, we worked with the federal government, the provincial government and other training agencies Yep. to ensure that those small small business entrepreneurs, because they're still, in my opinion, the essence of Canada, the small business individual. Yep. And we focused very much on what we considered to be a small business was anything under 200, but the majority of them probably were functioning anywhere from five to 50. Right. And we then decided that we needed to take a look at what our strengths of community were to in terms of selling ourselves so we zeroed in on the tech community mm -hmm. realizing what was going to happen around the technology that you and i are using to talk right now 
and the opportunity for people to start your small business with your skills that you have and talk to the world. We focused on some of our other great strengths coming out of the shipyard. We had welders, we had carpenters, we had plumbers. They were encouraged to start their own businesses. And many of them did so and did extremely well. We went to the federal and provincial governments and talked to them about what opportunities they would see to support Collingwood. To a person, every one of them said, your greatest industry in terms of support to the municipality besides your small businesses is directly to the West, Blue Mountain. Mm -hmm. So when Interwest bought Blue Mountain in the late 90s, we as a council partnered immediately with Gord Canning, uh, Bill Green and the team at Interwest and we worked intimately in terms of developing what you have up there now. And our focus was support it completely support their hotels and the in those days the average person basically came to blue mountain for a four-day stay three night stay and our goal was to get the person up on the hill looking down and seeing the great town and saying to themselves you know what we should go explore down there and maybe on the third third night let's go and see if we can find a, a great place to eat yeah and collingwood has evolved into some fantastic restaurants it has, it really has. So to summarize that, the focus of the council and the focus of the day was to, was to really go after small business. I think with young people like yourselves now and what I see happening in Collingwood, all the support is necessary there. You know, uh, through the technology, through potential government plans that you can buy yeah. into. We have a very proactive small business mayor in Brian Saunderson. And I know that he's in his economic development department he very much pushes that uh, that's amazing and yeah i can attest to you know the, one that that is a glorious view and there is just so much to explore up here and just the 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 foundational pieces that have that have been put in up here so you know thank you for that and and thank you obviously to the to your partners who did that because it is amazing and and there is just i see just so much tremendous opportunity now with the blend of you know, what's, what's been here, that, that grassroots, and as well as the, the new innovation and the new, you know, people that are coming in, it, it, it's a, a thriving area to start a company. And it actually, it, it's a good segue into one, another question I had along this was around, and this is really about the blending of grassroots and as well as people coming in, such as myself. And, you know, we talked a bit about this in, in our previous conversation, but it's around, you know, the new ideas and, and people are great, you had once said, and, but it's important to keep in mind who created the town, right? And, and the foundation that came in place so that there is this, you know, respect and mutual understanding of history and where things have come from to where things are going. So then that way, you know, those who are from, you know, and grew up here like yourself, as well as those who are new to the area can then look to collaborate better and, and build a, a future community that I think will be quite prosperous. You couldn't have put that any better. And I, at, uh, at the late 90s, early 2000, when we were doing the shipyard and sewing and, and so on, I'm calling what was going into its transition. We saw a tremendous growth from our friends from the GTA area and into the um, around Hamilton and so on. People wanting to move up here and to put in place what their vision of the community was. Mm -hmm. And one of my uh, issues was as mayor and leader of the community at the time was to navigate the two different 
streams, so as to speak. And at times right. things didn't necessarily go well because I was always a firm believer and to this day, I'm still a firm believer. Never, ever forget the people that created this community. Mm -hmm. You're most welcome to come here. You're most welcome to blend in and so on. But never, ever forget the people that built this community. And in doing so, doing so, and I've always been a great believer in one word when it comes to interacting with people, and that's called decency and, and this, if you want to throw in dignity too. So right. there were definitely issues around the transformation of the municipality. And to be quite frank, there are still some of them here right now, because when you look on, for example, you go up and down the beach or what I call the tree streets or certain other areas of the town, you see people buying up uh, homes, knocking them down and putting up much, much larger homes. Yep. And, you know, there has to be that opportunity for interfacing, which says, this is what we want to do on your street. And this is how we want, want to interact. Uh, Collingwood has a tremendous history of successful young people coming out of Collingwood Collegiate and John Vanier, John Vanier. And our goal is to try to keep them here in town. So, right. you know, it's the locals who still have created the community that want to ensure that the community is successful. But in doing so, part of that success has definitely come from people moving up here and the network mm -hmm. that they've done. I knew that as mayor. Uh, I was able to make contacts with many different industries, individuals, all because of the people who I surrounded myself who were smarter than me and they were able to interact uh, for me and making those connections. But we, will, we must always strive to never ever uh, forget the locals. Now you mentioned that the housing piece and that that's obviously a very hot topic for those who are not familiar uh, attainable housing in in the in the whole region of Georgian Bay and specifically in Collingwood I've experienced it myself um, with my family moving up here but attainable housing is, is a giant problem to the point of the middle class if you will uh, uh, have a hard time there there is no starting houses and it's very challenging um, what sort of systems do you think can be put in place or or need to be at least brought forward for consideration to help deal with this because it's not a problem that's going away. Housing is increasing significantly. And if we want to attract top talent to the region, but not have it so out of control from an affordability perspective, um, you know, do you have some immediate measures or, or systems that you think can be put in place or, or maybe they are being put in place by, by the current, uh, you know, individuals that, that, that are running the city, Mr. Saunderson and others. Uh, Adam, your point is so well made. It, it's the word attainable. There used to be the term affordable. Mm -hmm. And I'd say about five years ago in the political world, it became attainable instead because an attainable home in Collingwood now is you're talking seven, $750,000. Yeah. Someone of my vintage, I can't believe I'm saying that because the other thing we got to take into account and I stand be, be corrected, but I think I'm pretty accurate in saying that the mean income in Collingwood for a family is around $68,000. $700,000 to me is still a great deal of money. So uh, my Vision 2020 committee, which was formed in the year 2000, mm -hmm. uh, predicted exactly where we're at today. And they predicted that uh, based on the influx of Toronto, the 
heightened tourism, the desire for people to want to come and live here, the technology which would allow people to live here and still do their job. And in many cases, a better job than if they were in a tower down on Bay Street, right? Yep, absolutely. So we, every time a developer came forward to make a, a proposal in Collingwood, we always pushed the fact that we wanted something that was attainable for the public besides, we tried to run that blend. Yep. Now we've got to the point in town where I think that we must, and I stress this must now work with developers as a community to ensure that we have those attainable homes. And in doing so, we'll ensure that we have people to work within the community. Because my Vision 2020 committee uh, used Aspen as one of the models. Mm. And in Aspen, it was Councillor Sonny Foley, much, much to his credit, who said that the majority of people who worked in Aspen had to travel 35, yeah. 40 miles to work every day. Yeah, so which is crazy. I, it is absolutely crazy. And to be honest with you, it troubles me because I have uh, two kids myself who have, I have grandkids. They both live in this area, one in Collingwood and Blue Mountain. And yeah. I see what they've paid for their houses and I see what their, their values are. And I am mind struck by it. Mm -hmm. I'm mindstruck. I, I, you know, I'm in the development industry and I go to board meetings and I hear where people use the term like, we'll start at a million dollars. Well, where I come from as a local in Collingwood and always will right. take great pride in that, a million dollars is one heck of a lot of money. And, yeah. you know, I'm of a generation that you had 20, 25 year mortgages. I can't imagine that. But your question was, what do we need to do to ensure that that's there? Yeah. Quite simply, we need to work as a community led by council to ensure that when we look at development, that attainable, and I really want to stress that, that attainable component has to be there. And to make it attainable, you have to look at the mean income of the person living in the town to ensure that they can afford that. I heard President Biden last night, extremely impressed with the fact that he's trying to increase the minimum wage in the States to $15. Mm -hmm. And he was questioned in Wisconsin by a Trumper who was talking about $7 and 25 cents an hour. Well, when, Mayor, when the president said that you're basically making $280 for 40 hours a week, it really does strike home in terms of where you're at. So right. uh, I hear again, I think we have to engage the public. And I think the mayor, Brian Saunderson and council are attempting to do that to ensure that the message gets through. And if a developer wants to come in, you've got to enforce that. You do. And the reason I'm saying that is that we, when I, around 2003, something to that effect, we brought in architectural controls because we did not want to lose the significance of, <clears throat> excuse me, the rural area that we live in and the yep. historical value. <clears throat> so uh, summarizing very quickly, you got to focus on attainable. Yep, okay. Yeah, and I like the, the fact <laughs> of enforcement, like, you know, as much, you know, as collaboration, that, that, that there, there does come a point where it's a, a carrot and stick, if you will, right? That there needs to be some level of controls because without the systems in place, it, it will just continue to get continue to get worse, right? Which is favorable for some, but for the 
the larger you know community it's it's obviously not it, it creates it creates a very uh, undesirable um picture in my opinion because it doesn't include it's not an inclusive one right well i think we're heading in that direction right now i, I agree i, and I, I really I, do i really do when i when i look at you know and if people even on my own street will say well i can get a million dollars for my house and i'll say that's wonderful where are you going to move to yeah you know my point is let's 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 value places for what they truly are and permit people to move into those homes right but you know that's a tough go because then you have the gta moving up they're selling their places down there for three four million dollars and coming up here and what happens is it increases the prices and you know you have you have the, the market that that you get going back to our original point we have to work with developers who are willing to say you know what we're going to come up with a house that is going to cost four hundred thousand dollars and we're going to put that out there do you think we have the right level of collaboration like obviously you've served in the pub public you know uh, i as an acclaimed mayor for for many years you you work in the private sector providing you know consultative services now do you think we have have that right level of collaboration between those developers or, or between other private entities as well as the you know the municipality to, to help drive that conversation right because there's always the it's always been done this way and we see it continuing in terms of the the valuations um, but is there is there enough collaboration that we're actually going to see change or see action right um, and I, I'm a big bias for action so I like to see things happening and I, I'm just curious if you think that that's going to take place or not you and I are on the same page when it's seeing action and seeing things happen. The last thing I ever want to project to people is false hope. The word collaboration, that, that's imperative. We always need to remember that real estate is market-driven, right? But if yeah. you get into a crisis state, and in real estate, two, two types of crises can happen. One, you have a 2008 situation like you got down in the States, Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden the market drops and you paid $2 million for a house in actual value, which is worth 800000 That's one. Yeah. But the other is the fact that if you get to the point where people can't afford to live in your town and they're the ones who are working and servicing your town, then to me, that's a crisis. And I think yeah. that when I look at it, I think we're heading towards that. And I think that there must be a leadership, and I know Mayor Saunderson has certainly talked about this, of bringing the development community together and council, and probably even doing uh, like a Vision 2020 document that says these are these are the necessities for our municipality to function in a successful way, which uh, permits a blend of people from all backgrounds of life and all yep. economic backgrounds, and there must be a statement that goes out to a developer if we decide to move within our settlement boundaries to expand them that that area x amount of acreage will only be for attainable housing period right and council and the developer has to hold true to that so definitely we're heading into a crisis situation for the person who's wanting to live and survive in the town. Yeah, which is really unfortunate, right? Because there are a lot of great things happening, right? From a growth and development perspective, you know, we look at the, the Hume Hub, for example, it's an accelerator that's starting to come in. There's the a, there's desires for corridors that are going to take place in the city. As, as a tech guy, you know, I'm very, very excited about, you know, the Hume Hub and, and the tech corridor that's going to happen at, uh, 
you know, on Hume Street. For those who are, are, are maybe not familiar with the area, could, could you give us a, a little bit of insight into that? What makes you excited about it and, and where you really that, think that's going to take the, the city? Well, the accelerator is to us, it's a seed plant for future technology focus on, on Collingwood and in this area. We've worked very, very closely with universities, uh, Guelph, Waterloo, Community Tech, uh, Alberta, UPenn, and so on, in terms of what they believe to be the future driving engines for uh, technology. So what we're hoping to see in that hub would be a marriage of small businesses like yourself, who would yep. come in with all the technical background and so on. And by putting everybody in the same building, an opportunity for them to integrate and to share great ideas and, and to hopefully grow together. And from there, not only does it permit an opportunity for the small business growth, but it also says to the world, Collingwood is the new tech capital. Let's get going with it. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to make that in as simple and lay terms as I can, but that's where we're at. We see that building as the seed plant to future technology-based opportunities to come into our community. And we need to remember, and I remember this as mayor uh, with Z-Weed, Xenon, we were the first plant water plant to use their technology. And as a result, Collingwood got known all over the world for the purification of its water. And I spoke all over Eastern Canada and the Northern United States at times on that. Oh, so we had that, we had that opportunity and we did extremely well on it. Greenland Engineering, for example, is, is a water-based engineering company, which is basically a byproduct of that. And there are other engineering firms in the town who are the same. And do you think there's gonna be a greater focus? Like we, sustainability is a big hot topic now. And you know, there's you know, the, the blend of, of sustainability with engineering and technology to obviously create a better planet and a more you know, um, thriving region that's across people, you know, the, the money as well as the environment. Um, what are your thoughts around sustainability and how we can be successful in, you know, ensuring that we're keeping that in mind as we're, as we're growing, um, because there's infrastructure, there's people, there's the, the technologies to support it. Um, and I know that the region has given a lot of thought um, to this particular topic. It's an imperative topic, especially for your children and the future of our planet. And I, I put it down to two words, controlled development. So when you're looking at development, the controls must be in place. First of all, when you look at a piece of property, you got to do your science on that piece of property to ensure that that property stays in the most proactive manner that it can to support the environment, right? And, in and then working with the developer to ensure that, uh, or the commercial component to ensure that all of the environmental guidelines are put in place and kept. What's, you know, uh, and in fairness to Canada, I think we've done an outstanding job that way in the world. I still think we continue to do a better job uh, at the municipal level. I think we're jumping uh, hurdles uh, at the pace that we're doing it. But at the same time, uh, we got to remember, and I'm a firm believer, you want to cut down a tree, you plant a tree. As a matter of fact, Absolutely. you want to cut down a tree, plant two trees, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to put in a stormwater management pond, that stormwater management pond should be the level and the beauty 
of an environmentally protected pond. Yep. Uh, smart developers do that. They don't make them look like they're something from Beirut. They make them look like they're something uh, that you, you, know, you walked uh, into a forest and you came upon it. And smart developers realize that that also enhances the value of their other development. So 100%. sustainability must be with controlled development. Okay. And in, of course. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an important piece. I, I'm starting to become more involved and I, I'm very happy that I am because it's just continuous learning for, for myself personally. And, and it is obviously very vital for the region and globally. Um, one, of, one of the things that I always ask, um, you know, guests that come on the podcast are, you know, what are three books and, and maybe keeping it because uh, there's obviously a lot of different arenas you could go into, but focused around, you know, unlocking greatness at work, as well as unlocking the potential for the, you know, this area, the art of possible, if you will. Um, what were, what are three books that you would recommend to the audience for reading um, that, that people could, you know, really understand and, and really get to know, you know, your thoughts, your leadership style, your way of working, uh, that would be helpful for them. Well, if I could take it in a little bit of different direction, Adam, just a little. I'm I'm a history nut, okay. Okay. And a, yep. a side nut, side nut. I would say read anything on Winston Churchill you possibly can. Okay. Okay. And the reason why I do that is because he was a great risk taker. He played mm -hmm. within the rules. You have to remember that to be a risk taker, but he did that. He he was uh, incredibly successful. I would recommend the autobiography of Colin Powell. Uh, Colin Powell ends his autobiography with 10 uh, different uh, leadership points. And the really strong one that always stands out in my mind is don't go looking for credit. If you deserve it, it'll come your way. Mm. And also That's surround yourself with people far smarter than yourself, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, a, a third book in terms of uh, leadership. Well, I, I'd have to mention many biographies because I, I'm a firm believer that in in and I in studying biographies you learn leadership and you and you learn the opportunities and the risks that they take and that, that mm -hmm. they, and that they did take in terms of, of putting it together. So hundred percent. All right. Very yeah. good. Do you, do you think that there is um, like people like people team? It's not like they well. Some do forget history, but some don't pay attention to it because it's not hot, right? It's not on, on their device right now. It's maybe not in the top ten books to read because you know Churchill and Powell obviously very successful leaders. Not everyone might you know remember them or remember their successes or some of the work that they did. But you know even dating back to a lot, like history goes back obviously thousands and thousands of years, and there's great things to learn from it. Um, do you think there's an, a lost appreciation for history and, and gleaning some of the stuff from it? Because you can trace things back to, you know, ancient Greece to, you know, the, the philosophies there that are, and Stoicism and lots of others that are still applied today, but not everyone really looks at those systems and utilizes those systems today. I couldn't agree more uh, that if I got one criticism of Canadian education is that we don't have a true respect for history. Mm. Whether that's the history of uh, the fact that we're free and safe yeah. and studying our, our, our uh, successes in World War I and World War II and what our people stood up for, the history of our own country in terms of the individualism of the leadership that, that we've been able to evolve. Uh, 
if you study the Roman Empire, for example, you will see that mm -hmm. the engineering standards that they set two, three thousand years ago, whichever, uh, when they conquered England, for example, the pipe infrastructure, everything that they put in place were still models for what we would do today. I believe that history is the greatest teacher that we have, a, have period, because to me, history is his story, right? Mm -hmm. His story of now or her story or person's yep. story, if you want. Yep. But yep. when it really comes down to it, uh, I've always taught my students and I've always argued as a leader that you learn from your past and yep. you learn to if it's been successful, do even better the next time. If it hasn't been successful, you learn from your mistakes, admit your mistakes first and foremost, and then move forward overcoming them. So yes, I, I've got some real issues around the fact that we don't respect history the way we should. Yeah, and I like the part around accountability that you just mentioned, because I, I see challenges with people wanting to, you know, they don't want to have egg on their face, right? So they don't want to have, they don't want to own up to things. And and you see that even at work, people are trying to always, you know, mask what's happening. Whereas, you know, in the entrepreneurial world, it's taught fail fast and some or larger organizations are trying to adopt it, but they still focus on the old management practices, which they work great in the industrial revolution, but they no longer work today. It's a very different age and having accountability, you know, that trust and, and moving things forward, failing fast and progressing, you know, I think those are important pieces. And so I, I really like the, the accountability and you can see, you can have traceability if you look to where we came from and where we're going, then you can see that end to end, you know, system or holistic view, right? Hey, Adam, Adam, you're so right. And one of the things that I, I was so lucky, I had in, a couple of incredible political science profs at university. And uh, one of them, John Redicott, taught me uh, uh, quite simply that never ever be afraid when asked a question to say, I don't know the answer, but I'll get it for you, right? right. I tend to think that we still live in a world where you're asked a question and you feel that if you don't answer the question, that you're inferior. Yep. And we need to get away from that. And if a student puts his hand up and says, I don't know, that's not a bad thing. Yep. It's not. No, it's I'll not. No, I'll get the answer. Oh, let, me, let me try to get the answer, right? The same thing applies in government. You know, you get questioned by someone over an issue. Don't stand there and try to try to wing it. Say, you know what? I don't have that information, but I'll get you get that for you. And the most important thing, and when it comes to answers, which lead to decisions, is that all decisions should be information based. Yeah, an informed decision is the only decision. Yeah, and I, I agree. think sometimes we get moving too fast in the in the world that we live in based on social media, which can beat you up pretty bad, that we we get away from that. And I think that's important to the, you know, that that aspect of having data data driven decisions and then and as well as having the insights, right? Because people aren't talk I, you see a lot of organizations now, they, they don't almost think for themselves, right? The, I, we, there was a running joke the other day that I had a conversation with some people that there's so much reliance on third parties now that people don't learn to think for themselves, act for themselves, and then, you know, drive things. So you, you have information, you have knowledge of something, you may want to make a decision, but you don't have the wherewithal to then actually do it, whether that's the wisdom or whether that's just the, 
you know, the, the, the fortitude to do it or, you know, whatever the case may be, but it, it seems that there's that reluctance that takes place. And it's, to me, it's concerning because there's adequate systems that allow people to really be able to function in a much better way. Um, and people are, are choosing not to, for whatever reason, in some cases, it's blatant, I, blatant ignorance, I, I believe. I agree. I agree with you completely. I, I 100%. And, you know, opportunities like this in which we get to share and, and talk about that at least causes people to reflect back and say, you know what, I, I agree with those two guys in this yeah. case. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, Terry, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining today. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, um, what's the best way? Do you uh, email? Is there social media channels, a, a website? What's the best way uh, for somebody to get in touch with you? I think I think I, I'm a, I'm one of the of these generations that I think emails great, texting is great, but I firmly believe the greatest thing of all is conversation. All right, very good. So if they, if, you, if they want my cell number, it's 705-888-6251. That's 705-888-6251. And Adam, Amazing. I want to thank you. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our, our discussion. And it, I think it's uh, generic enough that it could open up a lot of doors. So Amazing. Well, this was great. I look forward to having many more with you. And this is part, as we've discussed, this is part of a, a series focusing on living and working in the region. And, and I can see us having a few more of these. So I uh, really appreciate your time again. And, and thanks so much. And I want to keep you in mind when we come to collaborating around uh, housing in this community. So take care. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, everyone, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate our listeners tuning in and listening to the Ways of Working podcast. If you would like to learn more about Ways of Working, including all previous podcast episodes, please go to www.thac.ca. So that's T-H-A-C-K dot C-A, where you can find all of our podcast episodes as well as there's blogging and other articles. And we would love to hear your feedback. So please uh, provide that whenever possible. We always greatly appreciate it. So thanks so much, everyone.